Litropus FM. This program was recorded May 24th, 2021 with Daniel Moncayo. How do we know each other? And is there a story you remember of our first meeting or first impression? Well, you were my student mm-hmm. in the Principles of Econ class. Mm-hmm. I was just really impressed with how you conducted yourself, the answers to questions and your participation in class. I think that's what I remember the most. And I thought, okay, this kid is insightful. This kid can communicate. Let's be friends. And 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 then we started collaborating on other stuff. He kind of worked for me for a little bit. I, I'm glad you thought I was a, a good student because I'm definitely not a good student uh, and I remember I remember being in your your class and you made you made a few jokes and I thought okay this is good I'm gonna enjoy this one I'm glad I got Dr. Moncayo for this class and then one of the the funniest memories I remember you walked in with your lunch and some oranges were in your lunch and I jokingly said oh you brought me o- oranges and and then you just like threw me an orange and I got a free orange at the beginning of class and I was I was like asking you shall receive this is how it works I like it <laughs> <laughs> well you know I I don't think good grades necessarily mean a good student somebody who's thoughtful who's asking good questions you don't have to be an economist you don't have to get an A in my class to be a good student I think he's just a really thoughtful person you're enjoyable to be around right so again when when you think about a good student you want to have somebody who's well who understands context, who's seeking more, right? I don't necessarily care about those students who are always seeking an A. Rather, I like a student who's asking good questions, who shows that have been trying to fit that concept or that puzzle into an application to their lives. I think that's what happens with the good students, right? It's people who are going to remember those concepts 5, 10, 15 years old. And I think you're one of those. I, I think you you have done a very good job at, at everything you do, just applying some of those things. And I can see it. I appreciate that a lot. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm your host, Alex Williams, and today I'm joined by Daniel Moncayo. Now, I've known Daniel for a few years now. He was one of my favorite professors at university, and we worked a little on some podcasting projects too. But outside of that, I don't know him super well. This is probably my favorite type of person to interview. Someone I've known for a while, but from a specific aspect of my life. I find it gives me enough context to hold a conversation, but not so much that I lack curiosity about them and their story. And you've probably noticed the podcast sounds a little different today. Well, it's 2022, a new year, so I wanted to increase the production quality of the show, switch it up, and make the episode a little more dynamic. Oh, and throughout the interview, you're going to hear little clips snipped in as well. Now, these are actually pulled from a quick series of questions I ask every single guest. We share additional clips on our Instagram, which you can find at My Wax Museum. And more importantly, remember to make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Where are you from originally, growing up, and now? So I grew up in Ecuador. Uh, in a city uh, called Quito. It's the capital of Ecuador. It's a city high up in the Andes. Most people in the United States, when they think of cities, they think of these big cities on the plain, right? Los Angeles, New York, uh, Dallas, and so on and so forth. But Quito has about two and a half, almost three million people by now. And the valley that it sits on is about five miles wide. <laughs> so it's it's not, it's a big, long city. It's about 
35 maybe miles long, but five miles wide. Wow. Very interesting city. It was there because the, the better place to put a city was impossible because the Native Americans did not like the Spanish coming and settling in their valley. So, so they went and put it in a more defensible place right at the top of the hill in this crazy valley. But, but now it grew into this beautiful city. Uh, again, 60 to 80 degrees all year long. It is beautiful. And uh, I moved to the States when I was uh, about to turn 18 to go to college at BYU-Idaho. And I spent many years here between that and serving a mission for um, a church. And I came back to the States, got married, spent quite a bit of time in California during grad school, then got a job in Utah for a while, and then I came back to Idaho. So I guess I'm Idahoan now. I own a lifted Jeep, a few guns, and yeah, I think there might be a Don't Tread on Me sticker on my Jeep. So I think I embrace it. You really fit in. I like it. Okay. (laughs) Well, you have to, or they shoot you. (laughs) Daniel Moncayo, welcome to My Wax Museum. Well, thank you for having me. This is an awesome idea. I love it. I'm excited to interview you. You are the 144th uh, interview I have done on this podcast, which is really crazy to me that I know that many people willing to come and sit down <laughs> and and answer answer my questions. So uh, before we got into this interview, we were talking about where you're from, which you're from Quito, the the Ecuadorian capital. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up there? Oh, yeah. Um, Ecuador is, I think, a place of very big contrast, right? And I think that living experience kind of matches the geography because we have beautiful beaches with really warm beaches at the top of the country. And then near the bottom, the water is now cold. Right, because uh, two big currents converge right on the coast of Ecuador, a warm current and a top current. At the same time, the coast is by the ocean, of course, and then you have the Andes Mountains, some of the tallest mountain ranges, and our cities are pretty high up there. And then you drive four hours to, to the east, and then you're in the jungle. And then you have the Galapagos Island in there. And it's just, again, a lot of variety and extremes. Um, and it's sort of the same way with people and growing up. I lived in a nice penthouse apartment um, when I was a teenager. I was, uh, I had two cars. My dad had a really nice job. I went to a private school, which doesn't sound the same as it is here. It's not $30,000 a year, but still quite expensive for the place. Mm-hmm. And then I just walked five minutes um, down from the hill I lived in, and people lived in shanties. So, you know, some of my friends from school would have a driver uh, and a Mercedes pick them up while my friends in my neighborhood, you know, were uh, dealing drugs and in gangs. <laughs> so, so, so I, I, I had a really wide variety of experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny because growing up in my school after some of my like uh, high school friends met my neighborhood friends. They were really scared of me (laughs) 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 because they thought I I did all the stuff that my friends used to do, Uh, you know, stealing, thieving, all this other stuff, but not really, right? Uh, It was just, I I liked some of them because of who they were. 
Yeah. But it's kind of like that, right? It's just a lot of extremes, deep abject poverty in one extreme and extreme wealth on the other. So, so it's just, I think, a place where I learned to appreciate the differences among people and to really see them for who they are, not for what they have. Yeah. Because to be honest, I like my neighborhood friends better than my high school friends. They were just better people. And yet they didn't have anything or very little. But I liked them a lot better. Yeah. What was it about them that uh, that made you like them so much better? Oh, they were happy. They didn't care about the type of jeans that they bought, mm-hmm. right? Whether they're American jeans or not, they didn't care, right? They just had fun and we played soccer together and then we, I don't know, we hung out and there was nothing about it. There was no worries, no concerns. It was just living. Yeah. Growing up, did were how aware were you of of this of this contrast was it something that you're kind of like eh, or was it something that you knew the whole time like this is really different there are these two totally different worlds here i think it's pretty obvious i think that on, on the bad side there are some very saddening ethnic and racial conflicts in ecuador right there's the the, the, the remains of colonialism are very strong there. And there are always these very, very deep, in, like entrenched differences among people, right? And we have really insulting names for each other and we don't like each other. And I'm, I'm a mestizo, mostly look white. And again, my parents did well. Uh, so, so I was on a different social economic class as 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 other people so so it's just again like there's these differences that are very unfortunate right that i broke consistently right but i don't think many people do so so yeah i think i was very well aware i mean you know just by the way my grandpa talked about black people <laughs> you know he's he's a you know uh, ossified racist you know but he grew up in a different time and but, but being around, you know, that growing up, you tend to see people differently because, you know, everybody is just pointing the finger at each other and pointing out those differences. Yeah. Seeing, seeing this contrast and having friends, you know, your high school friends and your neighborhood friends, how, how did that teach you about different people? And then how did you start forming your own perspectives on who, who different people were, whatever their background was? Well, I, I think that people are people. It doesn't matter their color, their shape, their height. You, you, you ultimately, ultimately see that, mm-hmm. right? And, and that all those differences are all made up. Really, they don't matter. And I think that that's something that was even more salient to me when I came to the United States. Because in Ecuador, I was at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid. Mm-hmm. right the definition of privilege mm-hmm. but i'm hispanic right and i came here and i remember dating this girl whose mom was really worried because i was hispanic you know <laughs> i i don't know where the worry came from really i i don't think you know she should have worried if she saw me today or you know where i'm at but at the moment you know I was this boring kid with an accent yeah so I think that even solidified that idea in my mind, right? It's like, you're no different. I mean, come on, like with my academic background, my socioeconomic background, like 
I was better off in the United in, in Ecuador than you are here in the United States as a family. So right. like, <laughs> let, let's not look down upon me. Right. Right. But, but it still happened. Right. Right. So, so ultimately it's just the fact that I think ignorance just drives prejudices towards each other. Yeah. And I'm glad I had that opportunity to look past those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you sit and listen and you interact with people like you did with your, your neighborhood friends, you realize they're good guys. They're happy guys. They're, you know, like they might live a different life slightly than I do, but you know, they're, they're people all the same. Right. Yeah. 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 Everybody's people. Everybody just wants to be happy. And, and, and granted there are bad people out there. I don't want to say that they're not and there's good people out there too right but yeah we're still people we still are all subject to the same crap right we're all in the same world how would you summarize your life in one sentence and why i i was gonna plead the fifth on this one <laughs> but uh one of my favorite quotes is unexam an unexamined life is not worth living socrates said that i think if i were to summarize it it would more more likely be an aspirational right sentence because I don't think my life has always been that way. But I would like to live a purposeful life, right? A life that is is been really thought through. Um, I I really spend a lot of time thinking about what guides my life and and the values that I espouse and how I treat others and and what I want to be said on my tombstone kind of things. And, and I just want to make sure that, you know, I live that kind of life. So let's talk about you going to the United States. At what point did you move there? Well, I was about to turn 18 when I got shipped here, almost against my will. Um, <laughs> my mother just basically said, you got accepted. Here's a ticket. Here's $500. Go surprise me. Right. And. <laughs> I, I did not want, I had my girlfriend, I had my friends, I had already applied and got accepted to good universities over there, but my mother thought, this kid is wild, he needs to go to a church school, <laughs> somewhere they're gonna, you know, shape him and mold him, and I'm grateful for that, and I think underneath it all, I knew that that would have been better for me, and I, I mean... What kid is going to throw away an opportunity to come to the United States for an education? Like I'm, I'm too rational to to not take that opportunity. So I ended up coming here. Did you see it as a, a bit of an adventure? Had you ever been to the states before? Yeah, yeah. I was. I came to Disney and did the touristy things, you know, and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I it was hard to admit, but. Growing up, most people that I interacted with had this, you know, dream of emigrating to the United States. So it was an aspirational goal that, you know, always was there in the background. And I mean, I and I, I, and I like it here. I think it, it turned out well. Tell me a bit about your experience moving to the U.S. and then studying here and, you know, starting your life here. Well, if I had gone to the University of California, maybe, or any other big public institution in the United States, it wouldn't have been that big of a change. But I came to BYU-Idaho, and I was this hippie, hippie kid with, you know, um, really long hair and just, you know, very different looking. 
And I, I, I did not quite fit. BYU-Idaho in the early 2000s was much, much less diverse than it is today. Which is really saying something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You kidding? Like, there were 30 Hispanic international students back in the day. 30. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was not a whole lot of us. I knew every single one of them. It, it was just it was just a very interesting place. But I want to say, you know, I, I brought in the flavor, you know, too much milk. <laughs> So, so what did you, what did you end up studying? Uh, well, when I came here, even though my parents were well off for Ecuador, there was a very tough economic time right around that time. And my dad had lost a lot of his saving. We had, we had about, what was it? One semester's worth of tuition. I came up here and my dad basically says, said, you have to get a scholarship. Otherwise, we cannot pay for this thing. So I'll get you there. You have one semester paid for, and then the rest is up to you. So so I came up here just kind of with that in mind, and I was thinking, okay, I need to get A's. So, so let's get a major. But then I was thinking, I want a major that matters, that has the good opportunity of finding a good job afterwards. So I was thinking engineering. But uh, those, you know, are not majors that most people get A's. So my chances of getting that scholarship were low. And I thought, what am I naturally good at? And I remember in high school, I always aced my economics classes, even though I was in the back of the room messing with my friends. It was it was obvious to me. I, I thought that way since the beginning. It's like, wait, this is hard for other people. <laughs> I mean, this is obvious. This is just plain out logic. Like. This is so anyway, I picked something I was good at already that gave me still the opportunities to have a good job afterwards that gave me some prestige and, you know, still opportunities for further education. But ultimately is that decision, you know, I need to get A's, I need to get that scholarship. So let's do something I'm good at. Interesting. Okay, so you did econ, you studied econ. And then where did you end up going for grad school? Um, UC Santa Barbara. So I went from the most conservative place on earth to one of the most liberal places <laughs> on earth. How is how is that change? It was awesome. Those people are crazy. <laughs> Although I, my students were high half of the time, so I I don't know <laughs> if, if if that was. But that was a really cool experience. I, I wish I had more fun. To be honest, grad school is a bit different. It's a world on, of its own. I just Went in, you know, at eight, nine in the morning, left work at 10, 11 or, you know, 12, one, two, and, and just did that for six years straight. Holy cow. That's insane. And did you like, do you look back fondly on, on that experience? Like, has it kind of aged in a way that, that is satisfying to look back on? Or is it kind of like, I, I like, I really, really should have had more fun. No, I should have had more fun. I mean, I live 10 minute walk away from the beach, yet I might have gone to the beach six times in six years. Wow. So I, I mean, my wife, he had a fun time, I think. <laughs> uh, but the way we, we did it, I think, was not something I would do again, right? Uh, right before entering grad school, right that year that I was taking off and studying and preparing, my wife, he was like, I want to have a baby. And I said, we're going to grad school in econ. I hear that people are not able to even have a decent like meal mm -hmm. and and suffer through this. And 
I was utterly, utterly unprepared to tackle that um, that program. So I told her, like, if you have a baby, you're going to be a single mom. Uh, but she wanted to do it anyway. She understood. So she was a single mom for like three years. Like I was not even there. Holy cow. I wish I had changed that. I, I think we could have waited a few years to, to have kids. But, you know, we have them and, you know, I love them and I cherish every moment I had with them. But I wish I had more time for them, at least during that time. I'm trying to make it up today, but time flies, you know, you can't get it back. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I appreciate that, that perspective on it. What do you miss most about your past self? Well, I was able to run the length of a soccer field without getting tired. <laughs> I, I was a defender, so I, I used to take the, the, the side defending channels and I was just running up and down and uh, I, I can't run anymore. So <laughs> I miss that the most. <laughs> But in a serious answer, I, I think I miss ignorance. I think knowledge is a curse. I, I love the blissful boob I was. I miss that. Through, through school, you got your PhD. What, what was your uh, thesis or uh, whatever you call it? Okay, so this is the part you're going to cut from the podcast because it's so boring. <laughs> The, the boring uh, part. Yeah. So so one of the biggest issues, I think, with government is how we collect taxes, because that ultimately imbues the, the kind of popular preferences towards redistribution and equality. Right. Mm -hmm. So my research was into how do we design tax systems that are efficient while understanding that like tax laws allow for loopholes and other ways to avoid taxes and kind of allow people to kind of get around these social preferences towards equality and equity. And so uh, that, that was it, right? Can I design a better tech system than what we have today and what the current literature suggests we do? And, and I did it. Um, I, I do have a proposal for something that uh, I think would work much better than what is currently in effect now in most countries. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you know, other listeners might not be interested in this, but I do enjoy economics, despite it not coming as naturally to me as it might for, for you. So what what would you propose? What would be better? Kind of the Coles Notes version. So, so, there's, so there's the realization again that the optimal tax system has to take into account people's responses to taxes. Mm -hmm. So up to up to now, economists had only considered people's responses to taxation through their changes in, in how much they work, mm -hmm. right? So if you tax people more, they're going to work less. But really, people don't act that way, right? They work just as hard. They just find ways to get around it through tax reporting, uh, special, you know, uh, tax entities or they shift their income to other places and so on and so forth. And, and that's, I think, a, an endemic problem of every tax system, right? You can think about a tax system in Ecuador, right? Where people, instead of working in the formal sector where they're easy to tax, they work in the informal sector where the government really cannot get. All those would classify to me as driving a wedge between what the law says people should pay and what they actually pay. So, so because that mechanism of of kind of tax avoidance and tax evasion was completely ignored by the literature. What I did is I created 
a theoretical model that took that into account. So not as the world should be, but right, as the world is, right? And and ultimately what you see is a trade-off, right? The higher taxes are going to be, the more people are going to avoid them, right? Through all of these reporting, all of these other type of activities that have nothing to do with how much they work. Mm-hmm. So the government has to balance out their need for revenue with the amount of kind of dead weight losses that they're imposing on the economy because people are working really hard to get out of paying taxes. Mm-hmm. So most taxes in the prior literature, when they were only considering changes to labor supply, were as high as 80%, right? Taxes on income, because income uh, taxes are inefficient as long as they change behavior, right? But we saw empirically that people do not change their behavior to, to income taxes per se, and at least in, in their labor supply again. But once you take into account all these other ways that people actually change their behavior, then high taxes become even more inefficient. So taxes should be significantly lower than that to avoid these costs, the cost of getting out of paying taxes. So I think best case scenario, taxes should be as high as 50%. But that is like an upper bound. Interesting. Okay, I I think uh, I'll I'll have to do a whole other podcast to to quiz you on on this and and learn more about it because I'm interested in those things. I know most people aren't. I remember I had a late night conversation. My brother in law is a tax accountant, and I remember having a late night conversation with him about taxes and how it works and how he thinks it should work. and And so I do enjoy enjoy those conversations. Uh, but <laughs> well, from his perspective, you want as many loopholes as you can because that's why they got paid, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So don't don't tell him that I think he's a dead weight law. <laughs> I won't. I I won't, and I don't think he listens to the podcast either. So you got nothing to worry about. <laughs> oh, by the way, all all my political family on Christian's side. They're all accountants. So oh, really? I'm, I'm, say, I'm saying that with love. Okay. Okay. Good. I'm glad you put that in there. I'll make sure not to cut that part out. Uh, so they all, <laughs> so they all know. Uh, <laughs> what is the best thing you've changed about yourself? That. <laughs> I, as much as I would love to have my ignorance back, I I really appreciate who I am and how I see the world and the experiences that have brought me here. I think that just getting more education is is what I'm most proud of and and sort of my ongoing efforts to to keep getting better. Of course, you you teach economics now. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what it what it's like the difference between studying and now being more focused on the teaching aspect of it? I don't think there's a whole lot of difference. I mean, I think I'm a student of economics. I I don't think one stops studying economics. I think that's ultimately what being a professor is, right? Is I'm trying to acquire more knowledge to pass that along. Hmm. That said, it's utterly frustrating. (laughs) And and, and it's not my student's fault. Like, let's say that flat out at the front, right? It's just that you guys don't know. And you don't know how much you don't know. So, so trying to communicate not just a concept, but the context, both historical and how it should be applied to one's life is incredibly difficult. Because knowing something is useless unless you apply it, 
right? And that application of knowledge is called wisdom. And teaching somebody something is not hard. You ask them to memorize, you put some sticks along with it in a test and a grade, and they'll memorize it. But that doesn't matter that they care about it, that they learn how to use it, that they are going to improve their lives because of it. That second part is, is what I struggle with because it is out of my control, right? I'm, I'm depending on my student to do that part and, and figuring out what are the incentives, how can I do a better job at helping them make that step? Because knowledge of my field, as many other fields will do, of course, will change their lives. It's just that I can't do that for them. I, I wish I did. Yeah. So so it's a little hard, right? Because I understand I've built enough context and nuance. You know, every bit of information just kind of enriches my life. Right. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? I think I would tell most people that they are stupid. And in fact, they're so stupid that they don't know that they're stupid. <laughs> I think that if most people had a bit of humility to understand that as collective humans don't understand a whole lot and as individuals we don't understand most things and that we are limited in our ability to perceive and understand the world around us i think more people would appreciate expertise more leaders would be humble about the kind of risk and decisions they make right and people wouldn't generally be kinder to each other because you don't know what you don't know and, and even somebody with my level of expertise, I can tell you that even on something that I'm an expert on, we know nothing. In our quick questions beforehand, you mentioned how you wish you could tell the world how stupid they are or, you know, give them that awareness of their own uh, ignorance of the, the awareness of we don't know what we don't know and, and to be open to learning more and seeking more. So how is it that you personally uh, keep yourself open to new knowledge and new learning? Well, let's let's just say that that I was telling the world that they're all stupid and mm -hmm. that they're so stupid that they don't know they're stupid. Right? <laughs> but But I want to include myself in that. Right. And I think that that is a realization that I came to that most people haven't and that I wish they did. Right. Because everybody would be just a little kinder if they really knew how stupid they were, how little they know. Again, I'm an expert on something and I'm a really good expert at what I do. Yet, <laughs> I don't know, like, even close to what we need as a society to actually do what needs to be done to actually do it correctly, right? So if an expert like me can admit that I'm ignorant, right, I, I wish that most people would too. And that realization, I think, would change people's lives, right? I think we're so overconfident of, of what we think we know and who we think we are that just, you know, humbling them down a notch would help us so much. And just kind of our efforts towards being better collectively and being better individuals. Yeah. What, what is it that you do to keep yourself humble? I keep learning. Yeah. I, I never stop. Right. I'm uh, you and I are podcast addict. Right. I listen to my podcast at two <laughs> times the speed, two and a half times if they enunciate right. 
Yeah. And and I'm listening to about an hour of content every day, right? Because I'm trying to find out more and I'm trying to apply that knowledge to to my life and kind of to my students' experience. So I just keep learning and I keep reminding me, I, I keep reminding myself that I'm an idiot. And it's really helpful to have conversations with smart people too, right? It's, it's good working at a university because my friends that I go to lunch with are other professors who know something I don't. <laughs> so, so it's just, I think also making friends with different kinds of people. I try not to hang out with the same people over and over because that's what leads to stagnation. So I'm friendly, talk to other people, try to get out of my comfort zone. Learn something new. I like it. I, I like that a lot. As as we're getting into the tail end of the podcast here, I want to hear what it is that you hope for in your future. What do you what do you want to do? Are there any big life goals or dreams you want to accomplish? I just want to live a purposeful life, right? And I want to live a life that has an impact. And I define that impact as narrowly and broadly as I can. So I think I have most impact with members of my family, right? Those are the people whom my actions will have life-changing consequences, right? So I want to do right by them, right? I want to live a life guided by principles that ultimately will end up in their benefit. And, and then we extend from that, right? Then they have most influence over my extended family. And then I have a lot of influence over my students, at least for the short time I have them on my class. Um, and, and extending from there, right? I, wanna, I want to add to people's lives in a positive way. Yeah. So, so that's, I think, if, if I die attempting to do that, I think it would be good. I like that. And I mean, you kind of answered it already, but I've, I do have this last question here. And that is thinking now to the end of your life, when you do die, when you look back on everything from that point, what are the specific things you expect you'll be most proud of? I just want my children to cry at my funeral, <laughs> right? I know my wife will cry because she'll miss me, even in all my quirkiness, right? I want my children to remember fondly times they spent together, my grandchildren, everybody else. I don't care. I, I think that if that's if that's the case, I think I'll be happy. I like it. Well, with that, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, you bet. It's always a pleasure talking to you. You're so much fun. And thank you, not just for listening to and supporting the show, but for listening intently to the people around you. Now, I know, I know the e-com bit wasn't the most interesting to everyone, but I loved it. And the great part is Daniel loves econ too. I think that's one of the best parts about listening, finding mutual interests and doing a little bit of geeking out. Like I said, I'm trying out something new this year. So the tale of the show will now include a couple highlights from the interview. Hopefully that helps me practice better listening. And I highly recommend you subscribe because we've got some really cool guests coming up. So make sure you're following the podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening on. And follow us on Instagram for more of those interesting clips. We've got some really interesting answers coming up. Oh, and I've also started asking guests to ask me a question after each interview. So if you want to hear an interview with me, that'll be coming out at the end of the year. It'll be a really cool compilation. 
The music in this program is by Garrett Vandenberg. He did a fantastic job, and I've linked to more of his work in the show notes. Everything else was by me, Alex Williams. That includes the hosting, the editing, and all of that stuff. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a review, share with a friend, follow us on Instagram, or support my work through Patreon. Links for everything and more are in the show notes. And remember, make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. 